Shrinkwrap Radio number 838, Greg Marr and Chris Drake on the wisdom of dreams, science, synchronicity, and the language of the soul. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guests today are psychiatrist Greg Marr, MD, and psychologist Chris Drake, PhD, who integrate Jungian depth psychology with modern sleep science in their recent book, The Wisdom of Dreams, Science, Synchronicity, and the Language of the Soul. We'll be discussing their work together and their groundbreaking book. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Greg Marr and Chris, I should say Drs. Greg Marr and Chris Drake, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're going to be discussing your, your work and your book, The Wisdom of Dreams, Science, Synchronicity, and Language of the Soul. And I have to say it's a real, there's so many books out there on dreams, and it's remarkable to find one that I'll try to, and notice it fuzzes out when I try to show it. But <laughs> at any rate, take my word for it, folks. It's, uh, it's a rather slim volume considering all the material that you guys have, have packed in. And, uh, but before we get into, into the book, I'd like to learn a bit about each of you. And so, uh, Greg, uh, you're an MD and a psychiatrist. Did you plan to be a psychiatrist when you were a kid? Um, I, I kind of had a lifelong interest in in dreams and psychiatry or psychology. I I was reading Freud and Jung in high school and recording my own dreams and things like that. Good for you. Yeah. Wow. I I actually have a vast. I have a, at least. 3,000 dreams I've recorded since I was 10, you know, so it's been a long, long-standing interest in mine. Wow. Well, you can you can engage in uh, some archaeological explorations of yourself <laughs> uh, going back, and do you ever go back and look at any of those dreams to see? Uh, I, I have, and I've, I've discussed them in a dream group I help run, and I, I, I have thought about them about them. So it's, it's kind of interesting to think about how, and I've seen this with other individuals I work with, how dreams change over time, yeah. you know, and it, as the person develops and changes. 
Yeah, I don't know if everybody in the audience knows that I'm particularly drawn to this topic and to your approach to it. Uh, I also have been a leader of dream groups and member of dream groups and kept dream journals over the years. So uh, we're on the same page, guys, and and I always enjoy that. Um, So uh, what did you major in as an undergrad then? Um, I decided I wanted to go to med school, so I didn't major. I majored in biology. I kind of double majored in biology and philosophy because I I really liked philosophy too. So I I, um, did that double majored and then then went to med school. Okay. And why did you want to become an MD? Where did that desire come from? Oh, probably on some level, I was probably identifying with Freud and Jung, who were MDs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it seemed more like uh, employable or something, that, um, at, at least in those days. It seemed yeah, to yeah, that's true. And uh, yeah, in those days, I don't know when those days were for you, but I know for me, uh, there. Uh, I I worked under in, in placements. I had placements where the person running the the uh, the supervision and all was an MD. Even though I may have had more experience having started with psychology and psychotherapy early on, uh, so that was a bit of a pill to swallow. And also, insurance reimbursement was uh, was was better. But all of that all of that picture has has. Uh, changed and uh, become perhaps even cloudier. (laughs) Uh, And um, you're also a writer and a poet, I understand. Yes, I've um, kind of had a midlife crisis about 12 or 15 years ago when I had a heart attack and um, I decided to sort of do what I've always wanted to do instead of trying to fit in um so the, actually the first thing i did after i after my heart attack when i got home was to buy jung's red book and then i started a hefty, a hefty volume <laughs> yeah joined the dream group and started getting interested uh, in expressing my interest in in those things directly included included in that what was writing so i started um, I was in a couple writing groups, and I write, write written a fair amount of poetry and flash fiction. I just po- published a little collection of poetry, actually. Um, but I've published flash, flash fiction and poetry in a number of medical and non-medical journals. So that's that's kind of been part of the journey. Is it, it's kind of another way of getting inside your head, in my mind, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, my my experience has been I don't know what I'm thinking until I write it down, and that's, that's a it's a process of discovery. <laughs> um, so, Chris, let's focus on you. You're a PhD psychologist. How did a nice guy like you get involved in psychology? Ended up in a place like this, right? Yeah, no, I I had a fascination with with lucid dreams. I, I had a couple lucid dreams in in high school and sort of didn't realize what they were. I, 
sort of led me to read Stephen LeBurge's stuff, some other books on lucid dreaming that I was just super fascinated with and sort of became a hobby of mine and uh, obviously read Freud's interpretation of dreams and envisioned myself becoming a, a dream researcher someday. Uh, I ended up going a slightly different path in that I'm a, I'm a sleep researcher. Uh, and, and that was, that was sort of something that grew out of the fact that, um, I got sort of talked out of, um, being a dream researcher by the fact that a lot of times dream research is not well-funded. So it's, it's not always a path to a career, maybe more like a hobby for me, but it was certainly very interesting. And I don't know if midlife crises are, uh, are contagious, but uh, <laughs> I started getting back into dreams and back into lucid dreams, um, you know, uh, probably over the last five or six years and, and began doing a little bit of research on on dreaming, which has sort of grown after talking with Greg and writing this book and and some other things that have happened uh, have, have sort of led me back to dreams serendipitously. And, and what flavor psychologist are you? Uh, clinical, experimental, what? I'm a clinical psychologist, um, okay. but I really focus on research pretty much 100% of my time now. But the but the focus of my research is clinical psychology and, and specifically in treating insomnia. So I do lots of behaviorally based clinical trials. Uh-huh. I do NIH studies, but I also work in uh, the pharmaceutical industry doing clinical trials. And so I have a, a very varied sort of background at this point in time, which keeps me from being too bored. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, I've been interested off and on in lucid dreaming, but um, but have not been able to develop any, any uh, real skill at it. Uh, I find that the times when I've had spontaneous lucid dreams, I get so excited that it wakes me up. Oh, I'm having a lucid dream. <laughs> and then I wake up. That's one of the tricks, I learning how to sort of maintain your your composure yeah. to the extent that you don't get woken up out of your dream. It's, it's yeah. a very important part of the process. Yeah, right. I need to keep plugging away at, at it, I guess. So how did the two of you uh, get together and decide to collaborate on a book? Uh, well, I was invited by the – invite, as part of my job, I'm invited to – talk at various departments about psychiatric aspects of medical care. So the sleep medicine program invited me to talk about um, uh, uh, psychiatric issues. Actually, the specific topic they wanted me to talk about was screening for depression and insomnia patients. But that, like, 10 years ago, like before my heart attack, I'd have probably just gone ahead and done it, but I, I sort of didn't, that sounded really boring to me. So I, I called up the person who invited me and I said, well, I would do that, but that topic sounds like kind of a snoozer. How, how, about, how about if I talk about dreams instead? And to my surprise, she said yes. So um, I gave this lecture and I hadn't known Chris um, in the past off and on, but we had kind of lost touch, but we uh, touched base again at that lecture kind of synchronously. So I I can pass that on to Chris now. Yeah, it sort of was a case of of synchronicity in in a way, because I normally don't go to those lectures um, unless I'm giving them. Uh, But in this case, I sort of dropped by in the middle 
And uh, lo and behold, Greg was talking about dreams and was asking, you know, uh, uh, members of the audience to volunteer, you know, one of their dreams for uh, interpretation or exploration, if you will. And so I, I sort of volunteered one of my early lucid dreams. Uh, we, I sort of come to call it a big dream um, and, and sort of talked about it. And, and afterwards, we sort of, I guess, reconnected in a way, got together talking a little bit about some of the, you know, lucid dreaming research that I was getting into again and, and sort of thinking about. And, and uh, Greg sort of discussed a little bit about a, a thought that he had about writing a, a book on dreams. And it sort of grew out of that. All right. And um, now there are tons of, of books out there on dreaming. I think I already alluded to that. And so what would you say makes your book uh, unique? Um, you, you must have I, some some pride about that to be to carry you through the project. Yeah. Sure. No, it was a, a hard but enjoyable, satisfying journey. But I think what one of the things that makes it un unique is our teamwork, because you. I think a, a book just about sleep science and a, or a book just about dream interpretation would be that's that's kind of been done but to attempt to kind of synthesize the two and write in one voice i think was something unique that we offered because we learned a lot from each other in the process you know so i think that's one unique thing yeah i, I mean greg's you know patient-centered focus and in, in my research focus um was sort of unique. If you if you want to look at dream uh, books that are out there, I think we've tried to sort of synthesize those two viewpoints. And, you know, to the extent that maybe we were successful at that, I think that is a unique contribution. And and trying to do that, as as Greg mentioned, was was sometimes a really challenging, difficult task. But um, but we were really trying to model the synthesis that we want to be present in you know, in our society as a whole, you know, sort of really investigating yourself, thinking about your yourself and in sort of ways that that may be um, important clinically and, and and being able to sort of think about dreams and um, utilize them in therapy and, and in your personal life. Yes, I think we, we, we were both kind of concerned that the culture, the, the scientific and clinical culture had moved away from dreams and, and therapists weren't interested in dreams, sleep researchers weren't interested in dreams, so we wanted to sort of change that, yeah. bring dreams back into the dialogue as kind of as it were. Yeah, I don't remember if I, if I read the title of your book out, but I think I'd like to do that again, even if I did do it before. The book is titled The Wisdom of Dreams, Science, Synchronicity, and the Language of the Soul. And, and indeed, the the book lives up to the promise of it delivers uh, what's in that subtitle, and uh, so I, I value that. And and uh, and uh, and I th well, let's move on. Let's see what else did I want to talk about the structure of the book. Um, the book has its own interesting structure, including the fact that. Uh, at the beginning of every chapter starts with a discussion of a dream. 
Yes, that 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 structure was important in its own right. Um, the for, uh, there's a couple reasons behind that. One, we wanted to give people and therapists the experience of working with dreams because they're kind of like phobic about dreams. Um, so we wanted to make dreams acceptable. So we wanted to start every chapter with a dream and talk about that dream and kind yeah. of explore it in more depth at the end. And I, what we found in writing it that the the dream once we found a good dream to cover a, on a topic, the the dream almost kind of wrote the chapter for us because it it almost kind of the chapter would kind of grow out of the discussion amplification of the dream as it were. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah, you know, I find that a lot of therapists are are phobic about touching uh, dreams. They feel like, oh, they don't have the special training that they would need. They 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 leave that to analysts, I guess, and uh, and they will sort of beg off of that. And well, like a quick comment about that. Yeah. You know, my wife is is an analyst, uh, just recently trained. Uh, you know, five or so years back, and um, you know, during her training, you know, dreams were not really a focus at all. And wow. uh, the Freudian um, sort of the Freudian groups have sort of moved away from making dreams a, a focus, at least in in that training program, anyway. And in, in fact, at worst, it's probably a bit of a taboo now sometimes to sort of think about dreams in therapy and and in a variety of ways. That's disappointing to me, obviously. Sure. Um, it's really a unique sort of um, opportunity for us to try to bring it back in a, in a different way, maybe um, from a more exploration kind of approach as opposed to interpretation in the Freudian sense. I think probably we're a little closer to the Jungian sort of aspects of how we sort of view dreams. And yeah, that's one of the things I, I like so much about the book is the, the degree that the Freudian influence is in there even as you also talk about the science aspects and so on. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but I subscribe to, as I'm sure you do, that uh, Freud referred to dreams as the royal road to the unconscious. And um, I really find that to be true. Um, at least that's my impression. Um, yeah. What do you guys think about the unconscious? We, uh, what's what's your, your position uh, on the unconscious? A lot of therapists don't don't believe in an unconscious. They think that's uh, there's no way to really operationalize the idea of the unconscious. And where where do you guys come out with that? Well, I think there's um, an underlying bias within psychology, uh, and and the way we, the term we used in the book is scientism, that yeah. only that which is objectively verifiable is real and and the rest is kind of nonsense and that leads to people like just that leads to these important historical figures like freud and jung being just left out of the discussion like what my son got a psychology degree from a very good school um in in michigan and he learned nothing about freud freud was discussed kind of as a historical anachronism and right. and Finally, like his last year, he was taking a cla class on psychotherapy. So I thought, finally, they're going to have to 
learn about Freud, but then I saw his textbook was titled Evidence-Based Therapies. I thought, oh, they're not going to have to talk about Freud again. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I come from a, a school, uh, uh, you know, sort of the tail end of the school of behaviorism. You know, so when when I was being trained, you know, a lot of the stuff we did uh, in graduate school was was obviously focused only on behaviorally based interventions. And, you know, harkens back to now this I, I was in training then I wasn't alive then. But, you know, if you think about the 50s and the sort of advent of, of behaviorism, that was, I think, one of the big reasons why, you know, the uh, unconscious mind was neglected for a while. And, you know, the. The, the probably one of the reasons why dreams weren't taken very seriously because that you know you had to have as you say uh you know sort of a bit objective verifiable sort of documentation of the unconscious in some way to sort of really legitimately study it or address it and and then came the 60s and you had sort of the new age sort of era taking over a little bit more yeah. but by the time the 70s and 80s rolled around you know there were sort of pioneers in lucid dreaming like Stephen LeBurge and and, um, you know, Kern and others who sort of understood that, you know, there was this other very interesting phenomenon that they rediscovered from ancient times, really, uh, of lucid dreaming. And now more recently, it's become legitimized because there's a number of studies which show and prove that, you know, you can be awake and aware. That's lucid dreaming, right? Be, you know, dreaming, right. but still being awake and aware in your dream enough to actually signal to the outside world and you can measure that in the in the sleep laboratory with an EEG looking at you know how the eyes move and a priori sort of determining what kind of signals you want uh, your subject to convey to the experimenter and 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 prove in fact that you're having a, a lucid dream that you're awake and aware in your dream while REM sleep is going on uh, neurophysiologically you're you're also awake and so that sort of awakened a lot of research and now I think there's become a renaissance, I think, in, in dream research at the present time where it's much more legitimate to think about the unconscious, but to think about also, you know, dreams in a, in a sort of more open way in terms yeah. of science. Yeah. I, I had an experience uh, similar to your son's, I think, um, that uh, I remember being in an in a intro to psych class at, at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, the lecturer down there, it was one of these, you know, tiers, tiered down lecture setups, right? Uh, this, and uh, this eminent psychologist who was teaching the class, probably, I think they forced some of the, uh, the some of the full professors, you know, they had to pay their dues by uh, taking taking on an intro class. But at any rate, I remember I'm very clearly saying. <clears throat> um, if if you're here because you're interested in finding out about the quirks of your own personality or, or those of your friends, you're in the wrong place. Psychology is the science of the study of behavior, and okay. and uh, so you know you're in the wrong place. And he was right. I was in the wrong place because <laughs> that was exactly why I, I thought, hey, psychology sounds like it could be, you know, I didn't wasn't sure what I wanted to do after I decided to drop out of engineering, you know, and I thought, well, psychology could be the, the place to be. Um, and, and you're talking about the Renaissance, and part of that Renaissance 
is uh, an an awakening and awareness of the importance of dreams in other cultures and, uh, you know, non-Freudian cultures and way before Freud. And you guys touch on that. And uh, so maybe you could comment on that. You know, what is it that that we learn from? uh, Well, I'm thinking of, you know, I think it's the Tibetans who were into, developed a real science of lucid dreaming, right? That's right. I mean, books, many, many books uh, in Tibetan culture. The One of the more famous ones, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, is really focused on sort of being awake and aware in your dreams in order to potentially have a good death. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's other sort of practices, um, you know, a variety of, of Tibetan uh, monks and, and sects that really sort of um, require you to study uh, and to facilitate your own practice of, of lucid dreaming before you can sort of graduate from that. And and that's very important, I think, still in, in, in that culture. Um, it's really our own culture that's probably one of the only cultures that doesn't value uh, dreams, uh, at least from the scientific point of view, uh, quite as much. Um, you know, Greg's really the expert on yeah, that area. Yeah, part of the reason we talked about other cultures is to, uh, um, we tend to see our culture as the p- pinnacle of... Right, <laughs> yeah. And um, if we think about our, uh, so we think about, we think, isn't it strange that these other cultures and our own, our own past value dreams so much where where we should be thinking the other way around is why don't we when through all of history and in many other parts of the world dreams are very important i remember talking to one of my um islamic friends and and the, he he was telling me how when he was a kid they uh, the common conversation topic over breakfast was what did you dream last night i mean that that would be unusual in in our culture yeah, um, I mean, even if you go back eons, I mean, and some people have sort of suggested that, you know, these cave paintings, some of which depict individuals with, uh, you know, duck heads, humans with duck heads and so forth and a variety of different things, you know, 50,000 years ago may have been inspired by dreams. And so if you think about the research on dreams and creativity, that that potentially fits very well. And so if you you sort of think about all of these cultures going back, dating back thousands and thousands of years, value dreams so much. And even today, almost all cultures value dreams so much. Why why are we giving them up? Yeah, yeah, really. And um, you talk about a renaissance that's going on right now. And part of that renaissance is uh, happening in, in the, the neural science and the study of the brain. And what, how do you see that that's informed our understanding of dreams? You know, part of, part of the argument had been that, well, we can't get inside the black box of a person's head. So, you know, we, we can't talk about consciousness, but now we get in the black box of the person's head in a certain way. Well, that that is also a, a, one illustration of the importance of dreaming is that in animal species, only the more advanced species dream, which which suggests 
how important that must be from an evolutionary point of perspective because we you are paralyzed in REM sleep right. so it's a it's a big investment in from from an organism's point of view to be lying there not being able to move you know so it must be important so why are we neglecting it but um chris knows more, a lot more about the Biology. Well, I mean, well, I mean, one thing to say is we 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 do know quite a bit about the state of REM sleep, or rapid eye movement sleep, uh, which is a bit of of a misnomer because uh, many animals, uh, if we think about that as the dream state, many animals, uh, for example, owls don't move their eyes but still dream. In uh, mold. No, wait, wait a second. What, <laughs> how do we know that owls dream that's, if that's they don't move question. their eyes? <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. Um, we know, you know, that they have uh, REM sleep because you can disassociate that state uh, from simply the, the rapid eye movements that occur. So there's a variety of things, as, as Greg mentioned, you know, reduction in muscle tone, uh, an elevation in the awakening threshold uh, that occurs and a variety of other things that sort of hint us at this this state is is. Um, you know, is is what we call rapid eye movement sleep, even if the, the rapid eye movements are present or even in animals where there are no eyes. And so what also can happen is, you know, I'll give you an example of a, of a dog, for example, you know, what, how do we know animals dream? And and one of the things that um, we, we know is there's a, a disorder, for example, called REM behavior disorder, where we lose that muscle atonia, which also, which is basically a paralysis of the muscles that occurs normally uh, when we dream, so that we don't act out our dreams and, and become prey for the predators that are out there. And 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 in this disorder, you lose that capacity. So patients may be sleeping in bed and and wake up, uh, you know, not wake up, but but actually have a dream and and basically wake up their partner by. You know, flailing around. In fact, there's there's reports of patients getting up out of bed who used to be football players and would sort of get up out of bed during a dream and 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 sort of get into a football stance and tackle the <laughs> tackle the the dresser and end up in the the sleep uh, clinic uh, with uh, you know injuries from from that kind of uh, of a disorder. And so you can actually experimentally induce this in animals and show that when you take away that muscle atonia, animals will oftentimes do a variety of different things, stalking, aggression, fear, grooming, running, those kinds of things can occur when you do that. So, you know, the assumption there is that the animals are dreaming when you see that type of behavior. And you, you can you can look at a variety of different things like that in the animal kingdom, but all the way down to, you know, mostly birds and, and mammals are the ones that we sort of have the most um, strongest idea uh, from a scientific perspective that they do dream, but they're every year are sort of increasing, uh, sort of folks on that list, you know, um, spiders we'll go, for we're drilling further uh, and further down, huh? further and further down. And, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that REM sleep is really not a unitary state. If you go back in evolution, there were sort of parts of it that evolved and, and sort of eventually evolved to where it is today. So you can have dissociated properties of the REM state in different creatures. So for example, platypus and, and uh, octopus and other other creatures we, we think now dream uh, for a variety of reasons, but their REM sleep doesn't necessarily look like human REM sleep. 
This is the beginning to uh, to get into consciousness. It sounds like to uh, a, a similar question is uh, at what point can a creature be considered to have some form of consciousness? That's right. There's even theories from Hobson, who just passed on passed on recently, um, but was a, a major dream researcher at Harvard. Um, that talked about the the REM state as as being potentially a proto consciousness state, in that one of, that maybe been one of the first states that we had before becoming conscious creatures. It, it's interesting to kind of imagine. Uh, Chris mentioned cave paintings. It's interesting to kind of imagine our sleep cycle eons ago, because because with with our electric lights we kind of create a state of endless summer, and yeah. we try to press our sleep into a small time window where as you know 50,000 years ago when you were in the winter it would be dark for 16 18 hours and you you'd be in a cave you and you you, you would you wouldn't sleep that long you know so you you'd be up the sleep cycle becomes biphasic then people would sleep and then be up for a few hours in the middle of the night and then go back to sleep Gave us sort of an opportunity to contemplate our dreams, to right. contemplate the, the the night, and to be in that quasi altered state. Yeah, Ruben Neyman often talks about the fact that you know, but certainly we're we're sleep deprived nation. For example, you know, we're twenty four seven working all the time, and everyone recognizes the dangers of that. Um, but Ruben Naven often talks about us being REM deprived, and I think we really are. You know, as, as Greg mentioned, we have this consolidated sleep. You know, we get up, we eat breakfast, we get on the road, and we're at our work. You know, there's really no room for contemplating what might have happened in the unconscious or the conscious, uh, you know, dreaming periods that we had during sleep. And if you let it go for even just a few minutes and don't, you know, consolidate that memory by maybe recording your dreams or other other ways to do it, um, you're going to lose it. You're not going to remember your that's dreams. Right. And eventually we feel like that that's really a loss. Um for, for us as a society when that happened. Yeah. Now, another revolution that's going on at the same time as, as all of this is the uh, what I would call the psychedelic renaissance uh, of a, a rediscovery of the, of the usefulness, the, the potential use, usefulness both in therapy and in... Uh, personal development and experience and so on. And I think you touch on that in the book. Uh, say so, give us your, th your thoughts about that. Yeah, the, there is a chapter about that in the book, and that is a very interesting area. And some of the same kinds of phenomena, the, the, the way the brain, um, the, way, the way the mind allows other stimuli in and opens associations to things that are normally not associated and allows for that 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 is similar be both in REM sleep and with psychedelics um, and it's in which and it's interesting that psychedelics are of, of great interest now but we we seem to kind of forget that we trip every night and it's free and there's not against the law <laughs> yeah. ignore right. that. Yeah, yeah. Look for artificial trips when we have our own. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly there's some differences between LSD, um, you know, in the dream state. You know, visuals are a little bit different, maybe more geometric, um, in, you know, 
while on LSD, shapes are, are sort of more common. Uh, synesthesia, for example. Uh, but but the other things are probably much more similar. There's probably much more similarities between those states. You know, we think about Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception opening, you know, and but but we you know that's really maps on to the neurophysiology of dreaming. So for example, when when we are in REM sleep, one of the more important things that happens is the inhibitory function of the cortex goes away. So, you know, lots of stuff's going on and that this makes it much more bizarre and certain certainly the uh you know the subcortical affective emotional areas of our brains become disinhibited and so we have these bizarre things happening that remind us of the hallucinogenic states that go along with with the you know those properties but um but it's it's a really interesting time for creativity too right um you know so you have different areas of the brain maybe far reaching areas of the brain that aren't typically activated together become activated and and that then can lead to some very interesting uh, creative uh, events that occur during during the REM period. Yeah, uh, um, a good quote is from um, Stephen King. Someone was congratulating him on how productive he is and how well he writes horror books, and he kind of laughed and said, well, it's not me, it's the boys in the basement. And he was... <laughs> yeah, right referring to that that, yeah. that it's not the conscious ego that writes that is creative as much as the the conscious ego allowing itself to experience things that from other parts of the brain and you see that both with psychedelics and especially with dreams so many famous artworks uh, like um mary shelley's frankenstein and and um paul, paul mccartney's yesterday came to him in a dream. The same with Mary Shelley. She was um, with some, she was only 17 or 18 and she was on a, on a trip with um, her future husband, Percy Shelley and Byron, a bunch of well-known poets were there. <laughs> yeah. And she, they decided as a game, because it was raining, to, to write a horror story for the next day. And, and Mary Shelley was very intimidated anxious and wasn't sure what to do and but when when she fell asleep that night she had the dream that became frankenstein um so there's also a lot of really interesting you know scientific uh creative aspects that that you know that we could talk about briefly for example you know mendeleev who who's working on trying to develop the periodic table over many many years woke up from a dream with all of the elements of the periodic table in place. He just had to sort of carry that onto paper. And, and uh, Kekulé is another great example, who uh, was the scientist who had sort of been working on developing, uh, you know, molecules and found uh, sort of that one of his dreams uh, precipitated um, the understanding of the benzene ring. And uh, maybe I'll let... Greg talk about that a little bit, but it sort of brings in the symbolism uh, that we're used to thinking about with, um, you know, with uh, with with Jung and and his sort of approach to dreams as well. Yeah, it was interesting. He was he knew the chemical structure of organic molecules, but he didn't know how they were arranged, and he struggled with that. But so and they're arranged in in these carbon rings. Um, 
but but uh, but he didn't have a dream of a carbon ring. He had a dream of an Ouroboros, this ancient archetypal symbol of a of a snake eating its own tail. But he recognized, oh, that's the answer. So it's interesting how the dreaming minds speaks in this archaic language it's very reminiscent of jung and it it probably also i i mean there's no way of knowing this but in my mind i speculate that it it, it picks those kind of symbols because it speaks a language of images but also because it wants to say more than just the answer like it 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 I think it was also telling Kekule, yeah, this this is how carbon molecules are arranged. But remember that that structure gives it the eternity and regeneration of life, and so that's why it's picked that image for that deeper meaning. Um, so, and I think dreams kind of do that because they connect us with that archaic spiritual. I don't, I don't mean archaic in a negative sense in that right. deeper right. world. Yeah, and this puts me in mind of visual thinkers versus uh, non-visual thinkers. Uh, you know, some people uh, think, by and large, visually. Uh, my wife is one of those, and um, also a very creative person. Um, and I think I, I think in words. I'm just totally locked into language and words. But Certainly, I do dream, and there are times when I am aware that uh, I think maybe as I get older, my uh, it's all gotten a lot more permeable, <laughs> so that uh, uh, the boundaries, uh, associations come uh, so easily and unbidden to me now. Um, yeah. Um, Let's see, what else do we want to touch on here? I think that's, that speaks to your allowing those associations in, because I think for a lot of people, um, they become more and more closed. So I, I think that that speaks well of your openness to your to the inner world. Yeah, yeah, well, willy-nilly, <laughs> whether, I don't know what to attribute it to exactly, but uh, but it's definitely something that I, I'm aware of happening with me. You know, I wonder, are you guys, uh, I would think you must have been involved or aware of uh, IASD, the International Association for the Study of Dreams? You guys members? Yes, I'm I'm a member. I, I spoke at their last conference and. I'm speaking at their next conference. Yes, it's a wonderful meeting, a fun right, group. right. And one of the reasons I, I uh, that can, comes to mind is uh, they asked me to do an interview of somebody who was going to be uh, one of the keynote speakers. I think to find somebody to help advertise and promote the upcoming uh, meetings, and. Uh, so I'm wondering if they will accept this interview. I'm hoping maybe they will, since I'm, I've gone ahead and done it. <laughs> no, I enjoyed the last meeting a lot. They they had a interesting activity one one of the final nights. They had a dream ball where you dressed up as a, a character from yeah. from your own dreams. It was a very enjoyable, unusual, enjoyable event. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, they're a remarkable organization because they are, are uh, very open-handed to both scientists and lay people. And so essentially anybody can join and everybody's treated with uh, pretty much equal respect in terms, you know, there's a real openness there. I, I've been off and on a member and, and uh, I think went to maybe the very first one or, um, you know, so I... I yeah, they're, they're, they're very respectful of art and creativity as well. There was a right. art show during the... Yes, yeah, that's always very interesting as well. And uh, I was influenced by a session I went to years ago talking about using dreams as a stimulus for writing. And, uh, and, I, and certainly in my classes and teaching, I've, I've used a haiku. Uh, not that I invented that idea, but, um, but it's one I picked up and that I've just found a really useful way to get into a dream is to have people write haiku where they have to express their something about the dream in say three lines of, of poetry, and uh, that can be very, uh, very re revealing. And yeah, that that kind of compression of language and imagery that you see in poetry is very reminiscent to the kind of condensation that Freud talked about in dreams, yes. like like. Chris was talking about the the man with the duck head. As those those are those are similar kind of mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is fun. Is there anything else that uh, that you'd like to say as we wrap things up here? Um, we could chat for a few minutes about the current work we're, we're doing on nightmares and acute trauma. Oh, yes. I meant to ask you about that. Yeah, our, probably our nightmare chapter is one of the shortest in the entire book, but it's really a, a fascinating topic that both Greg and I share. And um, we've been uh, beginning, so we're really in the beginning stages, but uh, in looking at um, patients who um, following trauma end up to the ER at Henry Ford here in downtown Detroit. And um really assessing the effects of, of the trauma on their sleep, uh, but also recording their dreams uh, over the course of that uh, month or so following exposure to trauma to determine whether or not there are aspects of the dream uh, or aspects of other uh, things that might um, be disrupting their sleep uh, that, that might predict the development of PTSD. And if we can sort of identify some of those things, the idea is, if we can intervene early enough um, to prevent that sleep disturbance, to prevent maybe the fear of sleep that potentially occurs in conjunction with the nightmares that they oftentimes experience, can we prevent the onset uh, of PTSD? And, and Greg was really instrumental in, in some of that because as researchers, as we sort of mentioned earlier, it's oftentimes taboo to talk about the content of the dreams. But, yeah, because uh, everybody in the group, it's a larger group, and they were talking about nightmares and re different scales rating nightmare frequency and severity and stuff and and uh, i mentioned why don't we ask people what they what what their nightmare was about the content you know and and everyone was kind of like 
besides Chris, everyone else was kind of like puzzled. Well, like, I, I guess. I mean, I never thought of that. <laughs> I guess we could. But there's actually a lot of good evidence about um, that if you that you can actually work directly with nightmares. There's, there's a form of therapy called image rehearsal therapy where you kind of um, try to redream the dream and re-enhance yeah. the dream and change its outcome, which which is kind of it it it's kind of marketed as a um, cognitive behavioral strategy. It, it's really it's it's just a, in my humble view, it's kind of a renaming of old Jungian techniques of, right. of dreaming the dream forward and trying to change it. It's just that same stuff in different language, more acceptable language. And it, it might be worth, Greg, maybe you mentioning a little bit about the you know in the context of reinterpreting. A nightmare or reinterpreting a dream in a, in a way you know maybe you could discuss a little bit about the Hmong uh sort of oh, experience is, uh, it's a very interesting story that is a fascinating story the um after the vietnam war the Hmong were were the mountain people in vietnam and southern china that um helped the u.s during the vietnam war so when the south vietnam fell a lot of a lot of Hmong el- emigrated to this country, right? And and so they were finding some of the young Hmong males were dying in at night, and they, they, they even had a name: sudden, sudden, unexplained nocturnal death syndrome. Sons and people, and they typically couldn't speak English, and the cardiologist, cardiologists in their Western way, they were kind of saying, "Well, maybe we should just." Put pacemakers into all Hmong males or something. <laughs> when they actually talked to them, it seemed like what was happening is they were having nightmares, and the nightmares were so terrifying, and this feeling of helplessness and powerlessness because they were had the sleep paralysis that you get in dream sleep. But they interpreted that culturally as they they weren't um, like performing the proper rituals in the proper way because they were no longer home. And they and they were so afraid to sleep that they um, would keep themselves awake. And that was probably mm-hmm. what caused the heart problems that killed them. But the interesting thing was um, there were some articles about that in the Los Angeles papers in the 60s. And, and Wes Craven, the filmmaker, read those articles. And that became the idea for the Nightmare on Elm Street series of movies. So they really emerged from that. Huh. Wow. Well, you guys are are full of uh, wonderful kernels of uh, history and, uh, and creativity. And um, so if uh, I think we're going to wrap it up here, unless there's something else. No, thank you very much, and and uh, just wanted to say what an honor it's been to be on your show. I I've listened to podcasts before, and I was it, it's not easy to impress my son. But when I was telling him that I was going to be on on interviewed by Dr. Dave, he said, "Oh, I listen to Dr. Dave all the time. Apparently, <laughs> he's very popular in in the um, younger psychologically minded crowds." So oh, wonderful. <laughs> That's great well, to hear. Really, really appreciate the opportunity. I think it's you know really one of the reasons why we wrote the book is to try to get some of these ideas across and yeah. hopefully create society a little bit more and 
and get get the sort of dreaming back into yeah, science. I, to- I totally agree with you, and that's why I'm so happy to have had this opportunity to, to meet you two and to speak with you. And so, uh, Drs. Greg Marr and Chris Drake, thanks for being my guests today on Shrink Wrap Radio. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Dick. It was a delight to speak to my recent guests, Greg Marr, M.D., and Chris Drake, Ph.D., about their 2023 book, Wisdom of Dreams, Science, Synchronicity, and the Language of the Soul. Although I've not met either of them in person, it was like speaking to two old friends or two longtime colleagues. The truth is, we have each been marinated in many of the same influences. And of course, it doesn't hurt that they both are longtime listeners and fans of Shrinkwrap Radio. In fact, Greg even mentioned that his high school-aged son was excited to learn his dad would be talking to Dr. Dave, suggesting I might have an audience segment out there I've not been aware of. I'm now kicking myself for not suggesting to Greg that his son should write me. Maybe the youngster will have a chance to listen to the interview and take me up on this invitation. One of the things I like about this book is that they give weight to both Freud and Jung without slavish adoration. The thing I find most distinctive about this book is the collaboration between the two authors, one a clinical psychiatrist who's also a published poet, and the other a clinical psychologist who's gone deep into the science side and runs a sleep clinic. As I've said, these guys seem like longtime colleagues to me because of my long interest in depth psychology and dream work in particular. We've read the same books and been influenced by some of the same movers and shakers in the field. But this is not to say they have nothing to teach me. Or you, dear reader. What I share with them is a general overview and philosophy. But there was a lot of new information for me in their book and also that came out in our interview. Two examples come to mind. Chris has developed a real passion for and skill in lucid dreaming. And the two of them are combining their skills in conducting original research on nightmares and PTSD. Remarkably, their book is a slim volume of under 200 pages. Chris gives much of the credit for that to Greg, who has the poet's sensibility to communicate much with few words. I want to put in a plug here for IASD, the International Association for the Study of Dreams. All three of us have been members and presenters and credit the organization with much of our growth as dream workers and researchers. Greg is going to be giving a presentation at the upcoming 40th Annual International Dream Conference that will be held June 18th through the 22nd of 2023 at the Ashland Hills Hotels and Suites in Ashland, Oregon, home of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. As they say on their website, quote, you will be in good company with world-renowned keynote speakers and more than 130 presenters sharing their work with dreams from 20 or more countries around the globe. This is more than just a conference. 
It's an extravaganza of fascinating presentations and special events. Everyone is welcome, whether you are a professional, a dream worker, researcher, student, artist, performer, author, or simply a curious, interested dreamer, close quote. If you can't attend in person, they also have live virtual sessions. You can check all this out at asdreams.org. Greetings, Dr. Dave. This is Jennifer Walrod calling you from Missoula, Montana. I'm a practicing psychotherapist in Missoula and also teach at the University of Montana, your old stomping ground, I understand. Today, I wanted to call and thank you for all your efforts and work to bring us Shrink Rep Radio. Uh, the ways that I have benefited personally from your podcast are more than I can count or um, will count in this uh, short voicemail. But because of that, I made what I plan as the first of many monetary contributions to you in the hopes to support and encourage your work as it has been so meaningful to me. So just a quick message of thanks to you, Dr. Dave, and many blessings to you and your work. Thank you, Jennifer, teacher and therapist there in my old stomping grounds indeed. The master's I earned from the University of Montana certainly was an important stepping stone along my path. Thanks for becoming a financial donor and encouraging others to follow suit. And thank you for your words of blessing. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's guests, Greg Marr, MD, and Chris Drake, Ph.D., authors of The Wisdom of Dreams, Science, Synchronicity, and the Language of the Soul. They integrated Jungian depth psychology with modern sleep science. I'm glad for this opportunity to have met with them. Next week, my guest will be Justin Woodbury, author of the book Sheltered But Not Protected, Learning to Love, Forgive, and Heal After Emotional and Sexual Abuse. I hope you will join us then. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.